Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. On today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Karen Zeta Haig to discuss cognitive electronic warfare and artificial intelligence. Before I introduce her, I want to draw your attention to an upcoming episode of our sister podcast, The History of Crows, celebrating the contributions of women in electronic warfare as part of Women's History Month. This episode will be available wherever you listen to From the Crow's Nest. All right, my guest today is Dr. Karen Zeta Haig. She's an expert on artificial intelligence and cognitive electronic warfare. She's an author, speaker, and consultant currently associated with Haskell Consulting, and she has a distinguished career across the technology industry. She also wrote a recent book with her co-author, Julia Andershenko, entitled Cognitive Electronic Warfare, and Artificial Intelligence Approach. Dr. Haig, it's great to have you on From the Crow's Nest. Thanks for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I'm call, please call me Karen. When people say Dr. Haig, I feel like someone's punishing me. Sounds good, Karen. Um, so before we get into the book, I want to basically provide a little bit of context for the discussion because when we say we, we love to use the words in our community, cognitive electronic warfare, as as if we all know what it means, but we don't. And there's, there's probably a lot of different interpretations to that, which I think you, when you going through the, your book, you kind of talk about different models. Uh, but at the at the beginning, we there's really the problem that cognitive EW and artificial intelligence as a tool set is trying to solve. So I wanted to start by talking a little bit about the problem that we find in traditional approaches to electronic warfare um, as our thinking of the electromagnetic spectrum is changing. I wanted to kind of open that up to you and, and to talk a little bit about the problem that we face with traditional EW as a way of presenting the opportunity that AI can bring to the table. Yeah, so traditional uh, EW approaches assume that the remitters that you're interacting with are relatively static in, in that they won't change their behaviors. And over the past uh, 15 or 20 years, we've gotten radio emitters that are far more software defined. And that means that we have the ability to change them potentially on the fly, you know, in milliseconds or faster. Um, and uh, so you've got, first of all, a timeline that's too fast for a human to respond to. You know, humans don't operate in sub-millisecond timeframes. Secondly, the complexity is very, very high, far more than a human. Humans are pretty good at, you know, optimizing two, maybe three things at the same time. But these uh, software-defined RF systems are thousands of potential things that you're trying to control to make a decision. And the other thing with traditional approaches that really is kind of the biggest problem is that they are very limited to known emitters, things that we have seen in the field and we've recorded and we've written down everything that we know about them. And that is just not true as soon as you are in an environment where things can change rapidly. I want to go back. You mentioned it, you talked about complexity and how you know humans can maybe address a couple things, but obviously with software-defined radios, they're 
it's, it's able to address many more issues, many more emitters at, at, at any given time. In a previous episode that we had on the show back in the fall, we were talking a little bit about AI, and we talked about the notion of this understanding of the spectrum. You know, if, if you look at our kind of timeline chart, it goes from con- a contested environment to a congested environment as more and more emitters moved in there to a complex. Um, but we talked about moving into this notion of chaotic environment. Um, and I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that because, you know, as we're talking about how humans can adapt to a particular environment, we we can do a little bit of adaption when in complex environments, but are but we really do struggle even more when in chaotic environments. And how does the spectrum today look from a chaotic perspective, or is it is 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 that a differentiation that is being is getting some attention in in your field? So, you know, chaos at some level is just that there's too many things going on for us to track, right? I mean, if you could model everything perfectly, we would know exactly what's going to happen. We can't do that. Even, you know, in the most amazing systems out there, we can't model everything. What is it they say that uh, all models are wrong, but some models are useful? So it's really a question of how far down that path we're going, you know, and, and the better that your receivers and your situation understanding is, um, but in some sense, less chaotic it is. Today's environments are not probably what I would call chaotic, but extremely complex. That doesn't mean that, you know, next week it'll be, it won't have achieved what everybody else would call chaotic. So when we talk about electronic warfare then in these complex environments, it's made up of several different components, obviously electronic support and then electronic protection, which is the kind of the resiliency piece and then electronic attack, which is, Oftentimes synonymous when we talk EW, where a lot of us are talking mostly about EA, uh, sometimes to the detriment to the, of the other components. Um, you have electromagnetic battle management, and so so forth. Could you go into how artificial intelligence is addressing some of those realities in e- each of those different aspects of electronic support, protection, and uh, attack? Yeah, sure. In AI, we talk about the concepts of situation understanding and then the decision-making, choosing actions on how to interact with the environment. Um, the concepts of machine learning come as a layer above the situation understanding and the decision-making. When you move into the EW world, those situation assessment and decision-making capabilities can um, flood and appear in all of the various components of an EW system. Um, If we're talking about electronic support, that is most closely aligned with situation assessment, and you might do things like behavior characterization, automatically extracting the features of the RF environment. You might want to do classification, which is saying, okay, this is this type of waveform, or this is that specific emitter. Um, You may be wanting to pull in concepts like data fusion, where you're trying to pull in other other information that is not strictly RF-based, or perhaps across multiple platforms. Um, As you're looking at anomaly detection, those are the unusual novel situations that you're encountering. Causal relationships, can you detect what made an event happen? You know, maybe previous in time, maybe you're looking at, um, you know, what are the subnetworks out there if there are multiple emitters that you're you're tracking? Um, And then intent recognition, what is the future tense? What's going to happen? You know, for example, a big jammer um, maybe a nasty, horrible jammer, but if it's not actually impacting um, your part of the environment, it doesn't matter. You don't need to do anything about it. The concepts of electronic protect and electronic attack uh, correlate most 
closely with the AI concepts of decision-making. Um, and there you have things like planning, which is the, the longer-term concepts of, of laying out what needs to be done and how you're going to achieve, achieve them. Optimization is where you start looking at choosing between your available alternatives to try and uh, uh, achieve multiple objectives with specific goals in mind, things that matter more, what matters more, what matters less. And then the scheduling, what are you going to do at the nitty gritty lowest levels of the, the system, the actual transmit and receive. As you move into slower time, you know, those are the, the, the support and protect and attack all happen sub in the millisecond or faster timeframes. As you start moving into things that become more human relevant, and that's the battle management and or network management, depending on exactly what your mission is. That's where you start looking at the, the longer term planning issues, the um, ability to do mission management and all of the factors, human factors. How do you interact with a human uh, to accomplish the, the very high level mission goals that you're looking at? Um, there's a whole, another field of AI that we talk about um, in knowledge management. You know, we, we can record data, but until you're actually recording that data in such a way that you know why it was recorded, it's just a big bucket of numbers. Um, and so being able to tag it appropriately so that you can look for the right information later is what gives you the power to be able to build a machine learning system on top of um, a good underlying database. Now, you, you talk about a lot of these uh, concepts then in, in your book, Cognitive Electronic Warfare, an Artificial Intelligence Approach that you wrote with your co-author, uh, Julia Andershenko. I was wondering what prompted you to write this book, and can you tell us a little bit about that thought process behind how and why you picked this topic and what you wanted to kind of get it, uh, get across to, to the reader? So probably, you know, a healthy dose of insanity. But um, the fundamentally what I've been working in embedded artificial intelligence, the small devices, small compute, low communications, my whole career. I built mobile robots back doing my PhD. And I discovered the RF problem space about 15-ish years ago and discovered that it was a really rich area for with technical problems and challenges that I thought AI had a good, good opportunity to, to solve and help address those challenges. And what I've discovered over the last 15 years is that people have a lot of myths and the media hasn't helped, of course. You know, you must have a lot of data in order to do machine learning. And it's like, well, you know, not really. You know, you can do things like leverage the physics of the RF environment. You don't actually need to always do it from the raw data. And in fact, in many EW domains, we don't have a lot of data. We may only have one or two examples before we have to actually immediately respond to something. The, the concept of, of evaluating a system that learns in the field, this is something that, you know, everybody tells me, yo, you can't do that. You can't evaluate a system that is handling novel situations. Like, well, actually we can. There are some excellent approaches for doing it. And, you know, the, the, I've had, I don't know how many people have told me, we will never field a system that learns in the field. Uh, you know, we will always pre-train it and then put it out in the field. And it's like, again, we actually have systems that do learning in the field. And so limiting ourselves to not thinking about those as possibilities um, is, is limits everything that we think about and limits the what we can accomplish in that world. So really, basically, what I wanted to do was take everything that I, you know, talk about in with in one-on-ones in one or small groups 
um, in, in the various environments I work in and say, okay, this is what I've learned. And maybe we can, you know, solve these things together and, and, and not have to always address the same problem over and over again. We appreciate that because, you know, if, if you, you've obviously been in electronic warfare for a couple of decades and, 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 uh, as we've tracked some of these problems, uh, we are constantly dealing with the same problem, it seems, over and over again. Um, and over in, in recent years, I feel like we've been making some progress, and a lot of that is related to this notion of, that AI is bringing to the table. Um, I, I like what you said. I want to go back a little bit about this notion that you know when we talk about AI, a lot of the conversation goes into the amount of data that's out there. And you mentioned earlier that you don't necessarily need a lot of data you need to be able to use the data properly. And I, that's an important distinction that I want to kind of go back to a little bit because when we're looking at missions out in the field and in, in a particular environment, um, it's one thing, how tempting is it for a system to focus too much on trying to collect all the data instead of trying to collect the right data and deciphering what it needs to focus on and then processing that fast enough to, to the decision maker? Well, that's an interesting question because in the field, at some level, you have you are collecting all the data anyway. And you know, if I had infinite space on my device, which we don't, um, I would record everything and I would make absolutely sure I was tagging it with everything that's out there. But we don't have infinite space um, to to record everything, and so we have to figure out what it is exactly that we're trying to record. And quite frankly, I would rather have three examples, one example of three different things, then a million of examples of one thing. That diversity gives me far more power to do the right thing next time around. Now, if you think about your toddler, if they are sitting on their, in their high chair uh, throwing toys on the ground, they throw all kinds of different toys on the ground because they're doing gravity experiment number 17, gravity experiment number 423. And each time they throw a different toy on the ground, they, they learn something different. So can we talk a little bit about the approach artificial intelligence brings to the table between the collection side then and the processing and distribution side? Because one of the challenges, particularly in, in, in the military, is the, the, the division between responsibilities. You know, you have the, you know, some of it's Title 10, Title 50, some of, you know, Intel to operations. You're collecting on one side, the ES side of the equation. Oftentimes, some of that data that's collected there falls into a different bucket. Um, and then, therefore, can't be shared in, a, in, in, in an efficient way. Does some of our structures and organization of how we use the data limit the possibilities that AI can bring to the table in terms of how quickly we can sift through and make decisions on the, the, the environment? Yes. I mean, we, to the extent that we have the policies in place that don't allow us to share the data, that is absolutely limiting. It's no different from healthcare data. You know, you don't want your medical history shared with everybody just because it would, you know, be scientifically interesting. I think the bigger problem is less policies than bad habits. And here's a simple example. Let's say we're talking about a um, an MDF emission data file that uh, matches the current RF environment very, very well. And we know exactly how to respond to a particular threat. What the system will do, typically, is respond to the threat and not tell an AI that's working in the background about what it's seeing. So once that threat has been dealt with, now your MDF is in a situation where it, do, it is getting data that it knows nothing about. 
There is RF data, there is something, but it doesn't know what it is. The, the traditional system doesn't know what it is. So it starts feeding that data to the AI and it's up to the AI to figure out what to do in the novel setting. The problem is, is that the AI hasn't even been able to watch the history, you know, the minutes leading up to that threat being dealt with for the AI to know that there was stuff going on in the background. If the AI had the ability to track the low unknown signals over the historical time frame, it can potentially do a much better job at knowing how to deal with that novel situation, even if it wasn't actually responding to it. Um, and that is something that is, it, when I say a bad habit, it is how these legacy systems are often architected and it makes it difficult to, um, uh, for an AI to operate in, in these complex environments where are, there are many, many things going on. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products that benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens it had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels, but in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can 
Connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. In your book, you use a running example of the BBN strategy optimizer. Can you expand on that example and explain why you use this specific example in the book and, and what does it mean? So I used to work for a company called BBN, both Peranic and Newman, um, out of Boston, and it's now a wholly owned subsidiary of Raytheon. We built, uh, in cooperation with BAE, we built a system that does uh, uh, communications electronic protect. Um, the BAE people did the all of the feature computation, and I, at BBN, did the decision-making to choose how to mitigate interference of different types. Um, I use this example for a variety of reasons. One, it, over the phases of the program, we went from blue sky, crazy ideas, let's see if this silly thing will work, all the way through actually fielding the system. And so I was able to test technological ideas, novel ideas, do research, write research papers, and then actually see what happens when you put it on a small embedded device that has no compute, no power, no memory, you know, a legacy 1998 hardware. And, you know, how does it work when you're writing something that, that needs to operate in, in millisecond time frame? So I really got the, the whole perspective of how does the, the system work in a setting that, you know, is real, real um, and realistic in such a way that, that I could talk about it. So one of the things that comes out in your book, and I never really thought about the the difference of the some of these components, because like many, I just kind of lump everything under cognitive EW, and I don't think about some of the finer difference points in the in it. But you talk about the difference between adaptive, cognitive, and aggregate incremental learning. And I was wondering if you could kind of go in and discuss how, and, and I guess part of the some some of what you learned uh, was that aggregate incremental learning is more optimal than or ef efficient than some of the other methods. So could you go in, could you talk a little bit about the difference between adaptive, cognitive, and aggregate incremental learning? So an adaptive system is something that changes based on what it's observing. The thermostat in your house turns the, the furnace on or off depending on whether it has accomplished the temperature goals that it is trying to do. So that is an adaptive system that is responding to the temperature in your house. Um, until you actually layer it with being able to modify the function that, that changes the decisions, you are not in, in a cognitive system. You're in a simple control loop. Um, and when we were talking about it in the EW environment, you can put together situations where you may have trained on a very large number of different emitters um, and know how to respond to them and how to, to maintain your performance over time. But as soon as you're out in the field, you are now in a setting where there are novel emitters. Um, and so an adaptive system is unable to uh, change its knowledge base in such a way that allows it to handle those novel emitters. It can only do the best it can based on what it learned previously. Meanwhile, a cognitive system has the ability to update the way it is thinking about the problem. You know, it can update those internal models so that it can respond to the novel situations. What ends up happening is that if you are in a setting where you were unable for some reason to train on any of the data that you actually expect to encounter in the field, 
An adaptive system can't do anything. It's like a watch that's broken. It is correct twice a day. A, not, uh, a cognitive system has the ability to say, oh, gee, you know, here is what I've just encountered. These are the things I tried against it. This is what worked well. This is, this is stuff that didn't work at all. And here's some stuff that kind of worked. And be able to take that so that over the course of time, you know, maybe the first thing it does, it has no way to mitigate a jam. But then over time, it starts learning how to say, okay, well, you know, I can still get data through by uh, taking these responses and learning that so that it can do that over time. And so what you end up with is a uh, system that can accomplish something very close to optimal. And with the right, where by optimal, I mean the best it could do if it knew every single emitter that it would ever encounter. And, then, and, and so then uh, with aggregate incremental learning, is that a step beyond the cognitive approach or is, is that how, how, where, how does that piece of the puzzle fit into the? Um, so incremental learning is, is you take a learned model and you add layers on top of it as you are encountering more information. Um, when I talk about the aggregate learning, I am talking about it over a, a mix of scenarios and mix of settings. So it is simply a um, method, a metric by which we define cognitive. Because, you know, things can be not very cognitive and they can be quite cognitive. You know, an MDF, if you're doing simple one-to-one -one exact match of an MDF, a threat into the MDF, that's lookup and it's, you know, 0% cognitive. But if you start fuzzifying your MDF lookup and you're allowing some similarity metric that isn't identical, then you're moving into, you know, a level one cognitive. It's really simple, but it starts moving in the right direction. And by the time that you're in a very soft fuzzy, you can do the, you know, the hybrid and recognize that these capabilities work under those settings and the other things work somewhere else and you mix and match. That's where you're in a, in a situation where you're, you're, you're fully cognitive. A lot of times we talk about training in realistic environments, and one, in an episode that we're working on in our sister podcast, History Crows, we're talking about uh, the ALQ99 uh, support uh, jammer on, that was on the that is now on the E18G Growler. And one of the stories that came out of it is basically at different points in time, you know, you develop a system that looks to be able to do all these great things, and then you put it out in the field, and it tactically there's certain elements that are just basically irrelevant and you can't use it in the real world environment. So relating that to s s sort of how we're going about with AI, obviously when you de design a system and develop it and you test it in a controlled environment and then put it out in the field, do we have the right approach to, to testing, first of all, both in the lab through on the field that we can really maximize some of the benefits of AI on our in our systems or what do we need to do to change so that we don't get into a situation where we're putting, and, and, and not that it happens a lot, I want to be clear, but we don't want a situation where we're putting tactically irrelevant capabilities in the field because we haven't tested them properly in realistic environments. Yeah, so, you know, in the utopic world um, where everything goes exactly the way I want, I want one test environment that can use data replay from recordings, actual missions, it can use modeling and simulation at whatever level of fidelity of the modeling and simulation, and it can put hardware in the loop all in one box. And so, for example, if we imagine the, the scenario where those drones were flying over Gatwick Airport, you know, could we, 
back in the lab mimic that. So maybe we fly some drones out in the backyard, but all the modeling and sim is doing the stuff with the, you know, the background uh, communications and radar traffic that is happening at that airfield. So that's where I would like to be. And we are very far away from that. We do not have the ability to generate uh, waveforms on the fly, which, you know, if you're a drone hacker, you could be doing whatever you want with, with your waveforms. The biggest challenge that we have right now is the assumption that uh, we can record data and then play it back. And you'll see this in every program that's out there. And even assuming you can record data at all, but um, we record it and then call that done. That's fine for situation assessment. I can tell you if I have recognized the emitters in the field. It is not sufficient for uh, an EW system where you're operating in an adversarial environment and taking actions. Because every single time you take an action, you change the way the data should look. Right? If, so if you're responding to a jammer, suddenly all the recorded data that you had is no longer relevant. Um, and we don't do that closed loop. That closed loop step is extremely important. It's utterly crucial. And we, we don't do anything like enough of it. And we, um, you know, we've got a variety, there are a variety of interesting test systems out there, but they certainly don't stitch it up and down all of the capabilities and they don't accomplish the levels of fidelity that we need. We really need to be testing at all of those levels. You know, thousands of experiments at low fidelity and handfuls of experiments at at high fidelity. We, we have nothing like that right now. And what do we need to change like kind of in the short term? What are some short term steps, though, that we, you know, to kind of at least get on that path so that we know we're at least trying to tackle the problem correctly? Um, so certainly within comms, we have many of those component pieces. And so starting to pull them together and, um, you know, allow that capability and recognize that we can do communications waveforms in a closed loop setting. Um, those are there. The pieces are there. And starting to, to pull that together is the important thing. In radar, that's a much more um, complicated environment from the modeling and sim perspective. And uh, the assumption, certainly in, in you know, most of the military settings that I've worked with, the, um, you know, the hardware is extremely expensive. You, you, you can't expect an academic for example, to buy some of these systems to, to do a test. And even if they can buy one, one is not enough. You need, you know, 10 or 100. So the, the steps there are starting to look at, you know, might be, for example, uh, creating models for simple radar waveforms that could operate on a software-defined radio. So it's a $2,000 piece of hardware that is doing something that looks like a radar waveform, even though it does not accomplish even the complexity of what you might see, you know, in a weather station, for example. So with AI, we oftentimes talk about instead of having a man in the loop, we have a man on the loop kind of involved in some capacity overseeing what's going on. And that gets into the training piece. Do you have any thoughts on how we are training to use AI technology in the field? How difficult is it to keep up with the training so that we know exactly how to use this new technology or evolve this technology in the field? Um, are, are we training appropriately? Do we need to embed uh, warfighters earlier into the design and development process so that they understand the technology a little bit better before they get their hands on it in a real-world environment? Uh, what are some of your thoughts on, on the training element involved in this? So that I would have two things to say here. And the first is that we already use AI 
everywhere in our lives. Your cell phone has more AI on it than, than you could possibly imagine. Fly-by-wire aircraft, you know, that's all AI. We know how to, to do these systems and um, get users to be able to handle it. Um, we just, as soon as we say, oh, it's got AI, suddenly people become afraid of it because it's something that they don't understand. So that's sort of the first piece of it. The second piece of it, I think you raised the point directly, you know, bringing people, the end users into the system, into the conversations earlier is an incredibly important step. You know, recognizing what their capabilities are, what can they do, you know, where can they they add value? Because the AI is operating down in that sub-millisecond time frame. Um, and it isn't going to have the full picture that a human might. So be, where and how can you bring that human into the loop in such a way that it is benefiting both sides? That also, so it not only makes your system better, but it also allows the human users to understand where the weaknesses of the system are, which of course makes the system better because then it can come back into the design. But it it helps them understand where and how to use it, when it will be most effective in the field. You mentioned how basically we use AI in our everyday lives. And so a lot of, oftentimes we don't even know we're really using it. It's just commonplace now. In many ways, it's kind of forcing us to kind of rethink our underlying assumptions about the particular environments we're in, both from a personal commercial side, but also military side. And AI and machine learning are basically, they don't have to simplify the world to a level that humans can understand. They just, they're, they're operating at, at that millisecond, that deeper level, making sense of the data that's out there. And so this opens up a lot of possibilities. But as you mentioned, like sometimes you mentioned AI, machine learning, deep learning, you know, and contextualizing data, it can freeze people. How do we prevent advances in AI and machine learning from paralyzing us to a point where we're not really able to optimize the use of this technology, particularly in military environment, but also in general society. You, you think about like self-driving cars and stuff, like, you know, all of a sudden you start to think about this and all of a sudden it becomes so overwhelming that you almost want to peel back from that because you don't want to go further than what you understand the technology can do. Self-driving cars are a great example. You know, people seem to be afraid of them and I honestly can't understand why. Self-driving cars have much lower accident rates than human beings do. But the fact that the system can't explain why they did something stupid, your teenager might be able to, maybe. But, uh, you know, the fact that we feel like we can interrogate the teenager, whereas we don't feel like we can interrogate the AI in the same way, has um, it, it certainly caused uh, hesitancy. And this is kind of true across the board. We, we fear what we do not understand. So, but that said, you know, we have all learned how to use you know, the brakes and the gas pedal in the car. And well, once upon a time, that was terrifying to people as well. So we will get there. We just have to, you know, continue taking steps. I find it fascinating that um, I think it's the, the, the European um, uh, Aviation Administration has a, a set of rules that say, if it's AI, then you have to tell the person. Um, but if you don't call it AI, then you don't. And it's like, but, 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 but what is AI exactly, right? I mean, it's, it's essentially enhanced mathematics that can, can do approximations in a way that traditional mathematics or control theory can't. So, so to wrap this up, uh, you know, I, I wanted to just go back to your book and not, you mentioned at the beginning, like maybe a little bit of insanity brought you into writing the book in the first place. And of course, insanity is about doing the same thing over again. So you're, you're probably going to write a second book on this topic here in the, in the next few years. 
what are some of the recommendations or conclusions really out of that book that either are driving your thinking today or may may influence the the writing of a second book in the near future that you want the listeners to kind of understand about this topic? Well, the snarky answer is I wrote a book before and that, you know, so I did, I fall prey to the insanity doing the stupid thing twice. I think to the extent that we can start addressing the small problems and building up the solutions, you know, I don't want to have to be addressing the same myths again, right? I want those myths to be gone by the next time that this comes around. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I again want to thank my guest, Dr. Karen Zita Haig. Just a reminder that we are conducting a survey of our listeners and we want to hear your thoughts. Now, please take a couple of minutes to give us your feedback. You can find the survey on our website at crows.org forward slash podcast and in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.